Talk 1110-993-WBT. WBT. The Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110, third hour underway. If you are listening on the podcast, howdy. But also, uh, you probably want to go back and listen to the very last bit of the second hour. Not right now. You don't need to listen to it right now. But there's just something that will never not be funny to me when someone calls in demanding that you know you people or some group or that party needs to needs to show some spine needs to be courageous and then they hang up because they can't even engage in a thoughtful debate <laughs> they can't even defend themselves except to yell and scream and call names that's that's all they've got I just find that to be it's it's never not funny to me so thank you to caller Paul there at the end of the last hour for uh, giving me the laugh that I know was your intention. That's why you did that. I know. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, that is the DSCC, as well as the Chuck Schumer. Oh, by the way, are we getting a vote on the gun ban again? Is that on? It's off again. It's on. Oh, it's back off. Okay. Well, Schumer's been all over the place. He's been all over the, he's been bouncing around on this. Oh, it's back on again. Yeah, now it's off. Is it back on? No. All right. So Chuck Schumer, he's got a pack that's called the Senate Majority Pack. And uh, I'm not sure, do you keep the Senate Majority Pack name when you're in the minority? Yes, I guess, because then you try to get the majority, so it still works either way. Okay. Uh, so these two PACs, these were the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Super PAC. Uh, they combined to spend $60 million in 2020 in North Carolina when a sex scandal brought down Cal Cunningham's once promising campaign to take down Republican Senator Tom Tillis. At the moment, neither group, though, has reserved any money for the fall campaign, although Governor Roy Cooper said he believes those groups uh, will be there when it counts. Mm-hmm. A spokesperson for Senate Majority PAC said that the group plans to begin running ads next week. The National Republican Senatorial Committee and the Senate Leadership Fund have plans already to spend nearly $30 million in the race. They're already running the attack ads against Sherry Beasley, uh, telling, uh, saying that she's soft on crime. In an interview, the DSCC chair, Gary Peters, Democrat from Michigan, said that the Republican Representative Ted Budd's nomination makes Beasley more viable as a candidate, although he was circumspect on whether the National Party will jump in with both feet. He said Democrats need to see how it plays out. This is a piece by Burgess Everett at Politico. My number one priority, he said, is to re-elect incumbents, so that's always our priority. Oh, Interesting. Not to pick up any seats, it's to protect the ones that you already have. But we do believe that we have some great, some real great opportunities to go on offense. Now, part of this is obviously going to be he's he's going to be a little cagey here because you don't want to you don't want to tell your opponents all the strategy, right? You don't want to give up all the plans right away. And they move money around. This occurs every election cycle. There, you know, one race looks good. This happened within the. Uh, uh, the Senate race here, the primary, Ted Budd, right? The Club for Growth had earmarked all this money. And then when it, when it was obvious due to the polling that Budd had 
you know, a very clear field to run through um, and was going to win by a lot. Then they just pulled their money out. So that happens. Senate Democrats' path to keeping their majority relies mainly on protecting four incumbents in close races. They're already committing money to Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, both GOP-held seats in states that Biden won. But there is a stark political reality for Democrats. Recently, they have won more Senate races in deep red states like Indiana, Alabama, and West Virginia than they have in North Carolina. Let me say that again. They have won more Senate races in deep red states than they have in North Carolina. Do you realize the last time, aside from Governor Cooper, the, like Democrats don't win U.S. Senate races here? It's been a while. Who was the last one? Kay Hagan. That was Tom Tillis. It's been a while. Um, again, this is a piece of Politico called Democrats Confront North Carolina Blues. Large super PACs and party committees often change up their spending strategies as the election nears. Uh, later on, when Democrats, while Democrats, could conceivably lose North Carolina and still hold the majority in the U.S. Senate, it is a vital seat for Republicans in a 50-50 Senate battle. And they say Democrats' lack of planned investment suggests the party is not convinced it can compete. Jack Pandel is a spokesperson for Senate Leadership Fund, which has reserved more than $20 million in North Carolina ads this year, said, quote, it illustrates how badly the political environment has deteriorated for Democrats that a state costing over $200 million just two years ago hasn't attracted a single Democratic dollar so far. Isn't that amazing? $200 million in the 2020 election cycle. Travis Brim, Beasley's campaign manager, said North Carolina is competitive. It's totally competitive. You're going to find out how competitive it is when we compete. And he said national Republicans know it, or they wouldn't have started spending millions before the GOP primary even wrapped up to try to keep this seat. Ultimately, Tillis expects, Tom Tillis, expects Democrats will end up spending tens of millions of dollars in the state. In part, that's because turning the state into a battleground would help Democrats divert the GOP's focus from incumbent-held seats in New Hampshire, Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia, and that'll ultimately determine who controls the majority. See, so there are more states at play here. There are other options to keep in mind, you know, like if you start pouring all your money into North Carolina, then the other team is either forced to respond or they abandon. Now, if they abandon, they can take that money and put it elsewhere. So maybe Democrats do this, right? They got to play coy because if they are not confident they can win, then maybe they just throw some money in there so you spend a bunch of money. And then you're not spending it in other states where they actually have a better shot. I know. There's all sorts of... Look, there are multiple levels and layers to all of these decisions, and it is more art than science. But we'll keep you posted on that. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Just a programming note. I'm not here tomorrow. I will not be here tomorrow. Do we know who's in tomorrow? Is it Chad? Yeah, Chad Adams will be filling in tomorrow. So treat him well, people. <laughs> it's 
704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110, and here is Robert. Welcome to the show. Hello, Robert. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Great. Uh, first of all, brilliant job with Paul a little while ago. <laughs> I, I loved how you uh, treated him with great respect, and he caved in. So. Well, to be uh, fair, I did kind of mock his original slogan. I did his his original thing where I, I kind of played dumb, like, oh, that's a fantastic juxtaposition. I've never heard that before. So I was kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did kind of goose him a little on that. Yeah, you're you're a little snarky, but that's yeah. okay. Uh, we like it. Um, and on the topic of stop school shootings, um, you know, Facebook has had these fact checkers who really been proven to be opinion checkers. Mm-hmm. And then when Elon Musk decided to purchase Twitter with the idea of all voices matter kind of thing, um, the government uh, evolved this Ministry of Truth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which I really call a state propaganda <laughs> indoctrination center, whatever. Um, but um, I've noticed a pattern of mass murders, and they tend to inform someone. They want to tell someone before they do it. And I don't know if they're reaching out and saying, look, I need help. Um, I really don't want to do this, but no. here it is. No, no, no. They, so- it's not about reaching out for help. You are correct. They They tell people... They um, now like we expect there to be some sort of manifesto, right? We expect it now, yeah. uh, because if uh, uh, did you hear the show yesterday? Did you listen to the program yesterday? I went through. Oh. There was uh, two pieces that I ran through yesterday. One was from Tom Nichols at the Federalist, and one was a New York Magazine piece, both from 2015. And they uh, and I, I put them together. But anyway, they the school shootings specifically versus sort of like the other mass shootings that occur, but school shootings. They, they, the, the shooters stylize their attacks all following previous mass shooters of uh, uh, school shootings. They, they, they sort of pay homage to the, uh, the Columbine killers. Columbine, yep. yep. The Virginia Tech. They, they, they incorporate pieces of that ritual into their own attacks and they study up on all these other attackers so this is why i mean is it a shock that we found out what today that the guy in texas that he took to wearing uh you know dark clothes black clothes and uh Mm -hmm. i don't know if he was wearing trench coats or whatever but those types of stylistic uh uh you know i don't know nods to the columbine killers they are purposeful and they and because they're, they're raging narcissists they need to tell people about how great they are at whatever this is that they're doing Okay. All right. Well, so the motivation is, but, but the point is, is that they tend to tell somebody in some kind of tell, mm-hmm. like in a poker game, right? And so I'm thinking about social media or these big tech companies. In in this case, in Uvalde, there were some private messages that were quite disturbing sent to random people, right? Um, and I'm wondering is if, you know, when you go into a bank and a robber comes in, there's a panic button. I'm wondering if there could be such a panic button you know, in terms of a solution to this, if you think somebody is going to come in and shoot up a place. Yeah, no, there is. Uh, you get a PM. There like already that, is. You get a panic button. Okay, so they have. Yeah, there is. You you would you would report that to Facebook, and there's some, you know, uh, is this person uh, expressing, you know, ideas of self-harm, harm towards others, whatever. So you, there is a reporting mechanism. But this is part of the, part of the problem is that, um, you don't know what's real and what's not. People, you know, will be all talk until they're more than talk. And like you said, if this went to random people, 
how would these random people have any idea that the guy was serious, right? Well, so in a, the only thing I could think then is that, you know, uh, you think of the bank panic button. You know, it's pretty conspicuous. I mean, obviously not for the criminal, but for the, for the employee. But is there a way to make that button very clear <laughs> to us? You know, because I've used Facebook and I've used private messages before, mm. but I'm just not, you know, it's just not very conspicuous on there to say, okay, boom, this is, uh, this is something that somebody well, else has to look at. If somebody, you, uh, maybe you've never encountered somebody who had written to you that warranted you to report it. Have you no, ever reported? Yeah. So if you try to report anybody for anything, you would see all of these options pop up. They walk you through. It's very, as soon as you click okay. on a message to report it, it's going to walk you through all the steps, and that's where you would be able to uh, to report okay. that. Now, what happens after that? Yeah, God only knows. It goes into yeah. some you know black hole at Meta, <laughs> and uh, no, and nobody does anything with it. I mean, my God, you've got example after example of school shooters who were known to police, right? And they right. had they had yeah. all of these tips and all this information, and and. And the the FBI doesn't do anything. The sheriffs don't do anything. The mm-hmm. local police don't do anything. So, I mean, what I mean, are we putting too much faith in Facebook here to manage the threat detection better than the FBI better when you the present yeah, them yeah, yeah, yeah. the intel? Yeah, right. And but I do agree that the solution is to you know hard lock down the school and you know prevent somebody from coming in and shooting up the place. And for me, this was. This really, you know, it, it rips your heart apart. Yeah. When you hear what happened, and it's awful. It just tears us up. And you know, obviously, taking away guns is is uh, let's say the default position of the folks that want to, you know, institute socialism or communism here. But you know, that's not going to happen without a fight. I mean, that that's like automatic civil war. <laughs> oh, and that's I told this to a guy who uh, made this uh, suggestion uh, to me today on Twitter. And uh, Robert, I appreciate the call. Uh, he made a similar suggestion about, you know, focusing on the guns. And I said, look, if, if your objective is to confiscate guns, then you are simply replacing one sort of violence for another. That's all you're doing because there will be violence. How could there not be violence? They've got guns. an email here from Dan. This just in, Elon Musk has offered to purchase the FBI for $100 billion. There's no word yet if the Clintons are willing to sell for that price. Musk has also offered to purchase the Biden family, but to date, no response from China. Get it? Because they're owned. Okay. Um... House Democrats in the state of New York are in disarray, Daily Wire writes. By the way, Daily Wire is now trolling Democrats with the kinds of headlines that the corporate legacy media write about Republicans. The other day, they wrote a headline, and people sent it to me because I make such a point about it, which is the Republicans pounce and Republicans seize, right? These are the things that Republicans do because, again, you know, when it comes to the rules of journalisming, if the scandal is about a Republican, the story is the scandal. If the scandal 
involves a Democrat, the story is the Republican reaction to the scandal and how the Republicans are seizing on this information in order to try and make them sad, make the Democrats cry, the mean Republicans. This thing just happened to this Democrat, and now they're just going to use it to beat him up. Yeah. And uh, so the Daily Wire has been giving them the same treatment. They've been using these types of words. And Democrats, by the way, the left hates this term. I always make jokes about it that, you know, you don't call it a civil war when they're uh, battling factions inside of the Democratic Party. You don't call that a civil war, which and there is some I mean, there's a valid reason for that. Seriously, because you start talking civil war, Democrats are like, all right, I'm in. That's. (laughs) Well, I mean, they did cause. Okay, never mind. Point is. They always media, the media uh, corporate legacy outlets, they refer to and constantly frame the divisions inside the GOP as a civil war. They're always talking about this civil war inside the Republican Party as if the same thing does not occur inside the Democratic Party. And it does. And so here's a really good example of it. And that's why Dems in disarray gets the headline treatment from Daily Wire, piece by John Rigolizzo, who says, quote, House Democrats in the state of New York are in disarray, attacking each other over a likely primary showdown between two high-profile progressive congressmen. This is just so delicious. The fact that it stems from a gerrymandering lawsuit where state lawmakers up in New York changed changed their state constitution, right? Because they were like, we're going to adopt nonpartisan redistricting commissions and we're better than everybody else. And so they went and they did this thing, and then as soon as the commission hit its first stumbling block, the Democrats in the General Assembly up there, the legislature, they were like, we'll take that back from you, thank you very much. And then they drew their own maps, gerrymandered the bejeebus out of it, and then they got sued, and then they lost. And now they got double bunkings all over the place because they got special masters that drew the maps that they're going to have to run under, and they are not happy. I mean, it has prompted Democrats to accuse other Democrats of racism. Which is really not surprising because Democrats are kind of racist. Have you heard some of the stuff they say? Like black people don't know how to get IDs and stuff? Kind of racist. Anyway, uh, Representative Sean Patrick Maloney announced Monday that he would be seeking re-election in New York's 17th Congressional District after a court-ordered special master published a draft set of maps for New York's House delegation. The special master's maps were the result of a ruling from the New York Court of Appeals, which is, for some reason, stupidly, the top court in that state. The Supreme Court, not the top court. The Court of Appeals, top court. It's New York, whatever. As the Cook Political Report's Dave Wasserman noted, Maloney would be moving from his current District New York 18 under the new maps. Maloney's district would be considered vulnerable in the current political environment. Since the district voted for Joe Biden... By just five points, <laughs> that is <laughs> a five-point spread is considered to be vulnerable in New York. So vulnerable. Like, this guy, Maloney, rhymes with, he is in charge of the DCCC. His gig, aside from being a congressman, his gig is to get people elected to Congress. So... He knows what the polling is. He knows what the polling looks like. And he's saying, I don't know if I can win re-election. 
in a plus five district. A recent internal poll from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has shown Republicans lead in the generic ballot by eight points. Eight points in New York. In New York. That is nuts. That's nuts. Maloney is the chairman of DCCC, would be running in a primary against freshman progressive representative Mondaire Jones, who currently represents the 17th. Jones would still uh, represent an overwhelming majority of the current district. He technically, though, lives in the new 16th district. See, so he doesn't live in the 17th. And so Maloney's like, oh, you don't live in the 17th. I'm going to go ahead and run in the 17th then. As such, should the new maps be adopted, Jones would be caught in the uh, rock and a hard place position of having to run against Maloney in the district that he mostly represents right now, or he's going to have to run in the 16th district where he lives against Jamal Bowman, another black progressive and a fellow member of the Congressional Black Caucus. Politico notes that a number of Democrats have now raised this issue privately, going so far as to push for Maloney to be ousted from his position as chairman of the DCCC. Because he's the, you think about it, what is he doing? He's going to make sure a black progressive Democrat doesn't get reelected. And chairman of the DCCC, your job is to make sure the Democrats get elected. So it seems like he's not doing his job. Richie Torres, he's in the 15th district up there in New York. And along with Mondaire Jones is one of two black gay members of Congress. He criticized Maloney for attempting to push Jones out of his district. Quote, the thinly veiled racism here is profoundly disappointing. There you go. Racisty racist plays the card. A black man is ideologically ill-suited to represent a Westchester County district that he represents presently and won decisively. Outrageous. Westchester County. Money. That's, the, that's what's going on. So what? So you're saying that he can't represent Westchester County because it's too rich and white, but he already won the county. It's already, it's already in his district. That's what Maloney wants. Maloney is trying to save his own hide. Meanwhile, Michael Barone, the uh, writing at, uh, well, this uh, this was published at the North State Journal, NSJOnline.com. The congressional redistricting wars are mostly over. Much of the hoopla surrounding it is proving overheated. The first and most important point is that the requirement that districts have equal populations seriously limits the effects of partisan redistricting. That requirement seems to have been on the minds of the framers of the U.S. Constitution. All of our congressional districts have to have the same amount of people, same number of people in them. And that limits a lot of the line-drawing shenanigans that might otherwise occur. One corollary here is that there's no truly nonpartisan way to draw district lines. A redistrictor with no knowledge of of partisan patterns will draw lines that will favor one party more than the other and one party's factions more than their rivals. But the boundaries may not favor the intended party when opinions change. That's what we're seeing up in New York. Voters' opinions have now changed. It's why Maloney is in a district that went plus five for Biden, but now can't get reelected in it. So he's got to try to oust a fellow Democrat from a nearby district that's a plus eight. That's 
that's what that's what the people who are always screaming about gerrymandering they never they never account for that the shifting of political opinions. It was a good report. Good job, Boomer. News Talk 1110. <laughs> News Talk 1110 WBT. Frederick Hess writing a national review. As the party of government, school spending, and teachers unions, Democrats have long had a leg up, on, uh, in, leg up with a public that likes its local schools and school teachers. Right? This has generally been uh, Democrat territory. But after two years of debates over pandemic school closures, school mask mandates, critical race theory, gender radicalism, student loan forgiveness, campus assaults on free speech, the Democrats have lost their mojo. A morning consult poll had the Democrats lead on education down to seven. Down to seven. Where was it? Less than a year prior? Twenty. It went from 20 to 7 <laughs> in less than a year. Wall Street Journal poll uh, went from 9 to 5. So they they got a five-point lead. They're still leading, but now it's down to 5. They are paying the price for being the party of school closures, CRT, and campus craziness. But Democratic losses have not yet turned into commensurate Republican gains. In short... When it comes to education, a lot of voters say they've lost confidence in Democrats, but they haven't gained it in Republicans. If the GOP could win over just half of these voters, they'd lead on education for the first time in decades. By the way, do you think it is any coincidence that North Carolina lawmakers introduced the Parents' Bill of Rights or the Parent uh, Academic Transparency Bill? And I do have audio from it. I'm not going to have time to play it, obviously, uh, today, but I watched the news conference, uh, or I listened to it, actually. I listened on uh, on the legislature's website. So I've got their sound bites, and I'm going to go through it. It went through a committee hearing uh, as well the other day. But obviously, they are positioning themselves as the party of parents, and they're trying to gobble up some of, this, uh, some of the disaffected parent voters. And as far as demographics go, parent is a great demographic for a political party to capture. Oh, it's fantastic. You know why? Because it's so inclusive of like everybody. Think think about it. Everybody in a school has a parent. Everybody knows a parent or everybody is a parent. Right? It's, It's a huge demographic. So if you appeal to parents... Electoral victory. Now, maybe, you know, try to keep some of your political principles intact while doing so. I can dream. The rights policy agenda should be rooted in five principles, says Frederick Hess. Number one, extend educational choice. Number two, empower parents. Talks about transparency, academic transparency legislation that directs public schools to share materials online. Defend shared values while also resisting over-the-top theatrics. Uh, he says, 
while the left must kowtow to its woke America is a slaveocracy wing, conservatives can straightforwardly insist that schools talk honestly about America's sins as well as its remarkable virtues. After all, more than four in five Americans say that schools should, of course, teach about Jim Crow and slavery, even as three in four voters, black and white alike, say schools should teach the traditional values of Western civilization. See, this is the overreach. This is the overreach of the the woke scolds. Because they hate Western civilization. They want to tear down the foundations of the civilization. They think everybody that might agree with them on some of this other stuff, that, that they're all on board with all these other things. Or they make, you know, assumptions about people's philosophy based purely on their skin color or ethnicity. Which is kind of racist, but whatever. Uh, promote excellence is another one of the things that uh, Hess recommends. The left has declared war on educational excellence in the name of equity. Progressives are attacking advanced math instruction, gifted and talented programs, graduation requirements, merit-based admission, blah, 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 blah. So promote excellence and bust the college cartel. Um, I think that was, oops, sorry. Uh, state officials should follow the lead of Maryland Governor Larry Hogan and direct state agencies to hire on the basis of expertise and experience, not degrees. Not degrees. That's a great idea. Um, do, 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 oh, then there was this. Hang on. You know, I'm trying to cram all of this stuff in because I'm not here tomorrow. Programming note, I'm not here tomorrow. Um, and I won't be here on Monday, Memorial Day either, but I'll be back Tuesday. Uh, So, oh, here it is. Latinos and Asians to remain somewhat, oh, hang on a second. The Democratic Party is reliant on working class Latinos and Asians to remain somewhat close to power. And they are rapidly losing both demographics in large part due to embracing the rhetoric of rich, white, liberal women. And then they've got the, uh, the charts which that's when you know it's real is if they have charts updating calculation on the president's approval rating, accounting for each poll's quality. And it's got Joe Biden's disapproval rating at 54.3% approval at 39.7. So basically 54.40. Do voters want Democrats or Republicans in Congress? This is the quote generic poll. So, you know, some no name Republican or no name Democrat. Who do you want in charge? Right now, and the lines crossed, uh, well, I can't really see how long ago it was, um, mm, but this is current. You got a 2.3% pro-Republican lean right now. More people want Republicans in Congress than Democrats. That doesn't happen often. Let me just say it that way. That does not, <laughs> that does not happen often. Often. It's usually, I'll never forget, uh, Noah Rothman one time told me, he says, it's kind of amazing that Republicans and conservatives ever actually win anything. I mean, think about it. The party comes in and they're like, their pitch is, vote for me. I want to give you nothing. (laughs) Government shouldn't be doing any of these things for you. It's amazing they win any races at all. All right, that is a wrap. I appreciate you hanging out with me and letting me hang out with you. Brett Winterbull's coming up next. I will see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Don't break anything while I'm gone.